Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Earl Bruce had said this. He said, Art sees things on a football field and his brain computes what defenses are doing and who's going to be open in another two or three steps in a faster way than most mortal quarterbacks are able to do. So Art had the body, the brain, the quick feet, the ability to release a football quickly, and although the players revered his talent, Art was kind of a loner. He was actually kind of a shy kid. He wasn't one of those good old boys who... Uh, you know, spent a lot of time with his teammates on on weekends when they uh, were not in season. He would go home to the farm and he would spend it with his family. Very charming. He felt the weight of the world on his shoulders because he had been so celebrated from such a young age. And Art never turned his back to a young kid on signing an autograph. Art tried to please everybody and everybody wanted to be pleased. Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes, released each week, will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with episode one. This is episode 5, Triumphant Evermore. In 1978, a Houston oil man flew to Boston to meet with New England Patriots head coach Chuck Fairbanks. The man was the leader of a deep-pocketed group of boosters for the University of Colorado's football team and was there with a generous offer meant to lure Fairbanks away from the NFL and his Super Bowl contending team and back to college to revive the Buffaloes program. Rumors of their clandestine meeting swirled, and after the requisite denials, Fairbanks approached the New England owner to ask to be released from the rest of his contract. The owner was livid. Suspensions and lawsuits and counter-lawsuits followed. During the proceedings, Fairbanks tried to explain to the judge that he didn't realize that he had to be released from his Patriots contract before taking the Colorado job, since he'd had three college jobs before going to New England and left all of them 
while still in the middle of his contract. The litigations were finally resolved when those well-heeled boosters agreed to pay $200,000 to the Patriots and $100,000 in legal fees to clear the path for Fairbanks to come to Boulder. As the 1980 season moved into October, not many would consider the new coach a wise investment. Not only was Fairbanks' team disappointing on the football field, his management of the program was nearly bankrupting the athletics department. Colorado's football program won just three games in 1979 and spent $300,000 more than it took in. When projections for 1980 forecasted that the athletics department would run a deficit of more than a million dollars, the university jettisoned seven of its intercollegiate sports. That left the school with just eight teams, the minimum required to remain a Division I program. Among the causes for the department's financial woes were the mismanagement of campus projects and resources, but also Fairbanks' $50,000 redesign of his office and his insistence on remodeling the 12-year-old dressing rooms at a cost of $620,000, despite an estimate that was only $125,000. Ticket sales were down as well, since the Buffs weren't winning, and the NCAA was about to release the results of its investigation that alleged 132 wrongdoings by the school. Colorado started the 1980 season 0-3, with a narrow setback against LSU and a pair of 42-point thumpings to UCLA and Indiana. But the worst was yet to come. As the season moved into October, the Buffaloes welcomed the Oklahoma Sooners. The good news is that Colorado would manage to score 42 points. The bad news is that it gave up 82. The 124 combined points and 18 touchdowns set an all-time NCAA record. In total, the offensive explosion set 51 NCAA, conference, team, or stadium records. Some of the numbers from that game border on the unbelievable. Oklahoma set the all-time NCAA record with 876 total yards and 758 yards rushing. Sooners backup quarterback Darrell Shepard ran for 151 yards on three carries. Oklahoma ran its famed triple option attack again and again and again. The Buffs knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. They just couldn't stop it. This famous anecdote reveals just how bad it was. Late in the game, a Colorado manager knocked on the door of the Oklahoma's coach's booth in the press box and said, Coach Fairbanks hates to do this, but could you possibly just run up the middle for a while? The Sooners obliged and scored two touchdowns in about five minutes. Fairbanks would only last one more season, winning just seven times in three years. Colorado would hire Bill McCartney, who would steer the program through the rest of the decade and lead it to a national championship in 1990. Some programs were hoping not to wait 10 more years to reach the promised land. The sixth-ranked Pitt Panthers had found their stride after a sluggish opener against Boston College and were now 4-0, allowing just five points per game. Number eight, Georgia was also undefeated alternating nail-biting wins with blowouts through the first four weeks, while North Carolina climbed into the top 10 without allowing a single touchdown through the first month of the season. Three games between ranked teams highlighted the Week 5 schedule, providing the chance for several undefeated contenders to earn a signature win. Nebraska already had one ranked team's pelt on its wall, and it welcomed a wounded and reeling Florida State to Lincoln, looking for a second. But the Seminoles feared nobody. Not as long as they had Big Bad Ron. Every night on the field, you can see him arrive. He stands six foot one, weighs 235. Broad at the shoulders, narrow at the hip. No lineman around, gives no lip to Big Ron. Big Ron. 
big bad one. The Grammy for Song of the Year in 1980 went to Sailing by Christopher Cross. But in Tallahassee, Florida, nobody could top the Seminoles, and no song could top Big Bad Ron. Georgia said he's here to help out them knows. Bobby Bowden's mighty proud, and the Lord knows about Ron. People started out saying, oh, he ain't so mean. Tampa Tribune said he'd be the Hulk if he's green. Written in 15 minutes by a pair of Florida State alumni and set to the tune of a 1961 Jimmy Dean ballad, the song honors the hulking senior leader of Florida State's defense, Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons wasn't born. He was chiseled out of brown Georgia granite, had the wings of mercury attached to his ankles, and had life breathed into him by whatever saint is assigned to Bobby Bowden. That line, written by Tom McEwen in the Tampa Tribune, was one man's attempt at describing what was nearly indescribable. Standing six feet one inch tall and weighing 235 pounds with a 20-inch neck, Simmons dominated games from his nose tackle position. He bench pressed 525 pounds and finished ninth in the Heisman Trophy voting as a junior. His weightlifting sessions were appointment viewing for his stunned teammates, and he grew to folk hero status in Tallahassee. Another newspaper described Simmons as a muscular mongoose with railroad ties hanging where arms normally grow. Ron rules the terrain between the hash marks. You don't take a football into Ron's habitat, you take a machete. Bobby Bowden said of Simmons, if he were three inches taller, he'd be illegal. His teammates were glad there were no laws against his suiting up on Saturdays. No pads, no helmets, no cleats, no crowd can keep you all from hitting the ground. Nothing you got can keep you alive. Old Ron can bench 525. Coach Bowden remembers that getting Simmons to sign with Florida State was a watershed moment for his program, but it almost didn't happen. Simmons was being heavily recruited out of Georgia by the hometown Bulldogs and some other schools, but he had already agreed to play for the Seminoles. About a week before signing day, an assistant coach for FSU that was in Georgia called Bowden to tell him that there was a problem. Simmons was mad, and he wasn't coming to Florida State. Somebody at Georgia had leaked a false report to the local TV station that Bowden was leaving Tallahassee to coach Ole Miss, and Simmons thought that he had been lied to. Eventually, Bowden and his coaches were able to straighten things out with Simmons. He signed with the Knowles and became Coach Bowden's first-ever consensus All-American. Simmons hurt his ankle in the Seminoles' opening game of the 1980 season against LSU and had an encouraging week of practice after being limited in the team's first four games. Now, Big Bad Ron would lead Florida State into a sea of red at Memorial Stadium against Nebraska. The third-ranked Huskers were 3-0 and had outscored their opponents 133-16. Sports Illustrated even sent its writer Jim Marshall to Lincoln to write a story about the Cornhuskers' path to Tom Osborne's first national championship. Marshall was certainly aware of Simmons and the Seminoles' defense, but he, nor anybody else in the stands that day for Nebraska's 108th straight sellout, knew anything about Florida State's starting center, Jerry Coleman. Coleman was a sophomore biology major that had walked onto Bowden's squad and was making his first ever trip with the varsity team. Pressed into action after injuries to the top two centers on the team and a disastrous debut by a backup guard that filled in during the team's loss to Miami, Coleman was given the start against Nebraska. After seeing 11 mishandled snaps the week before, Bowden told Coleman, quote, Buddy, I don't care if you block a soul. I just want a perfect snap. 
He wasn't listed in the game program, nor on the rosters available in the press box. In fact, Coleman had to earn his way to eating at the training table with the rest of the team by picking up trash near the apartments where the players lived. If the Seminoles were going to pull off the upset, they would need Coleman to succeed under pressure against one of the stingiest defenses in the country. The game could not have started worse for Florida State. Nebraska put together back-to-back 80-yard drives to take a 14-0 lead. Senior quarterback Jeff Quinn looked sharp, and eye-back Jarvis Redwine was chewing up huge chunks of turf to put the Seminoles' defense on its heels. On offense, Florida State's first 21 plays had resulted in a total of minus 7 yards. The Huskers' defensive line was dominant, sacking quarterback Rick Stockstill four times in the first half and bottling up FSU's ground game that would net just 12 yards on the entire day. Finally, with time running out in the first half, Stockstill led a drive to put his team in field goal range, and senior Bill Capice made a 32-yarder to make the score 14-3 at halftime. In the locker room, Coach Bowden wrote pass rush in huge letters on the chalkboard and devised a strategy to help free his offense and find a way to climb back into the game. But the Knowles would need to find a way to stop Nebraska as well. Or maybe, in the second half, Nebraska would stop itself. Towards the end of the 1969 season, Joe Paterno called a meeting for his Penn State team after it trounced Maryland 48-0. The Nittany Lions were 8-0, ranked 4th, and had a big decision to make. Representatives from the Sugar, Cotton, and Orange Bowls had come calling to Happy Valley, and all were anxiously awaiting the news of where Penn State would spend its New Year holiday. Paterno wouldn't reveal his own preference and let his players decide for themselves which bowl bid they would accept. The decision was far from straightforward and is a perfect illustration of how convoluted the bowl system used to be. Penn State wanted to play for and win the school's first ever national championship, but the path to that goal could not have been less clear. Consider the factors in play. The current top-ranked team and defending Rose Bowl and national champion Ohio State was undefeated and had occupied the top spot in the poll since the preseason. Woody Hayes called it the best team to ever play college football, and its closest game all season was a 34-7 win against Minnesota. The Buckeyes still had to play their annual rivalry game against 6-2 Michigan and its rookie head coach Bo Schembechler at the end of the year. But when the Bucks beat Michigan, as everybody assumed they would, their season would be over, since Ohio State would not be playing in a bowl game. In those days, only one team from the Big Ten could go to a bowl game, and prior to 1972, no team could go to the Rose Bowl in back-to-back seasons. The Lions could accept the Cotton Bowl bid and play the winner of the Southwestern Conference, likely either Arkansas or Texas. Both were undefeated and ranked in the top three and were going to play each other the last week of the season. If Penn State went to the Orange Bowl, it would play seventh-ranked Missouri, the champion of the Big Eight. Now, Since Penn State assumed it could finish no higher than number two behind Ohio State, its players made their decision based on which bowl trip would be the most enjoyable for the team. Citing rumors they heard about how black players were treated in Dallas, they voted to return to Miami, where the team enjoyed its experience playing in the Orange Bowl after the 1968 season. It was, in hindsight, a mistake. Ohio State was upset by Michigan in the first battle of the 10-year war, opening up the race for the national championship. Texas rose to number one and beat second-ranked Arkansas in a game famously attended by President Richard Nixon, who awarded the Longhorns the national championship in the locker room right after the game. It's a, it's a great thrill. It's a great thrill for us to win the football game, but the big thrill 
Uh, I know I speak for all of our squad as for the President of the United States to take time to endorse college football and to honor you with our your presence in our locker room. This is uh, a big moment in all of our lives and uh, I'm speaking for the coaching staff and all the players. The, the AP and the UPI will name Texas number one, as we know, uh, after this game. And uh, this is a great honor in the hundredth year of football. I want, I, I want all of you to know that we didn't make up the plaque in advance. It doesn't say what team, and I'm taking it back to Washington and put in Texas. And if I could add one thing, Darrell, while we're talking here, uh, I do want to say that, uh, that uh, Penn State, of course, uh, felt that uh, I was a little premature in suggesting this, so we're going to present a... A, uh, a plaque to P Penn State as the team in the 100th year with the longest undefeated untied. Is that fair enough? Fair enough. <laughs> Had Penn State voted to go to the Cotton Bowl, it could have played Texas for the national title. Instead, number two Penn State beat number five Missouri in Miami, while number one Texas beat number nine Notre Dame in Dallas. The Orange Bowl was memorable for the largest crowd in the game's history, Penn State's seven interceptions, and the real mountain lion that Penn State had on the sidelines. Penn State finished the 1969 season ranked number two for the second year in a row, despite a 30-game unbeaten streak and back-to-back -back perfect seasons. Years later, Paterno would admit that his choice had been to go to the Cotton Bowl, and the players on that team have said they wished he never let them vote. In 1980, the stakes were far lower for a Week 5 matchup between Penn State and Missouri in Columbia. Missouri had quietly climbed into the top 10 with wins over San Diego State, Illinois, and New Mexico, while the Lions were licking their wounds after being manhandled by Nebraska. Penn State was sorting through a quarterback battle between freshman Todd Blackledge and sophomore Jeff Hostetler. Neither one had been effective against the Huskers the week before, and Paterno decided to let the freshman, Blackledge, start the game against the Tigers. No one would blame Paterno for regretting that decision, after Blackledge turned the ball over on five straight possessions. But the Lions defense pitched a second-half shutout, and Blackledge showed poise beyond his years in scoring three touchdowns to lead his team to a 29-21 win on the road. It was the first of seven straight wins for Penn State, who seemed to find their quarterback of the future. Ohio State had no such problem settling on a quarterback. That position had been held down for three straight years by Arch Schleister. Art grew up on a farm in Ohio, and after an undefeated career as a high school quarterback, was considered a can't-miss prospect by most big-time schools. So talented was Schleister that even the intractable Ohio State coach Woody Hayes told the recruit's father that he would embrace a new passing offense if only his son would sign with the Buckeyes. The sales pitch worked, and Schleister turned down Michigan and Penn State to play in Columbus. During recruiting season, Art and his father were a welcome sight at Buckeye practices for current players, since Woody would hide his famous temper while wooing the young quarterback. That would all change once Leister was a member of the team. In those days, Woody used to work with the defense during practice, and then review film of what the offense had done afterwards. As the freshmen and his coaches were working out the new passing attack, team managers would grab the 16mm reels of practice footage and edit out all the interceptions so the old man wouldn't get too upset. One day, Coach Hayes got his hands on the evidence before it could be doctored, and to his horror, saw interception 
after interception. He picked up the projector while it was still running and threw it across the room where it shattered against the brick wall. Then he started banging his forehead on the table while screaming, never throw late over the middle, never underthrow a deep ball. Suffice to say, Woody had an aversion to interceptions. The rest of the world found that out when Schleister threw late over the middle against Clemson in the Gator Bowl later that year, and Hayes punched the Tigers player that had the audacity to intercept it. Schleister would find great success as a sophomore in 1979, making the cover of Sports Illustrated twice and nearly leading his team to a national championship. Along the way, he had engineered a come-from-behind victory over UCLA on the road. After the game, some Ohio State players had told an L.A. Times reporter that the Bruins' players were soft. Head coach Terry Donahue circulated copies of the statements before the rematch in 1980, but his All-American safety, Kenny Easley, didn't need any reminders of what happened the year before. The senior from Virginia had always played with reckless abandon, but now, with his team ruled ineligible for a bowl game and facing the same team that had added insult to injury after beating his Bruins the year before, Easley's emotions were at a fever pitch. He admitted afterwards that he had watched the film from the 1979 game over 200 times to get ready for this year's matchup. Both teams were 3-0, and Ohio State receiver Doug Donnelly remembers that there was no taking this UCLA team lightly. You know, the thing I remember is I, I think we were just a little nervous and, and not intimidated, but, you know, I think we were nervous playing UCLA because we knew how good they were and watching film, film that week, and we knew it was going to be a tough game. And so, uh, yeah, it was – we weren't, you know, taking that team lightly at all. I think we were going out there saying, hey, you know what, this is this is a big game, and, and we've got to win this game. The Bruins entered the game in Columbus as an 11-point underdog, but quickly jumped out to a 3-0 lead. The Buckeyes were poised to answer, but a Sleister pass intended for Donnelly in the end zone was intercepted. It was as close as the Buckeyes would come to scoring all day. Irv Eatman, a defensive tackle that lived in Dayton, Ohio, and had to hear all offseason about how Ohio State had defeated his Bruins the year before, was a terror. Schleister, who was knocked out of the game early in the fourth quarter with a concussion, was sacked five times in the game. Four of them were by Eatman. UCLA led by that same 3-0 score at halftime, but opened the third quarter with back-to-back touchdowns to put the game out of reach. The Buckeyes' offense that averaged nearly 40 points per game was shut down completely, managing just 230 total yards. Late in the game, after fumbling a punt, Easley was involved in a spirited tackle on the Ohio State sidelines. During the scuffle, he bumped into a local Columbus photography shop owner that was on the sidelines. The photographer pushed him in the back, and Easley spun around and punched him in the face. He was ejected from the game, but even in his absence, Ohio State could not score, and the 17-0 setback was Earl Bruce's first regular season loss as the team's head coach after 14 straight wins. In the locker room after the game, the visitors danced and clapped along to their theme song, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. The Bruins were off to their best start in a decade and were about to face another great quarterback in John Elway and the Stanford Cardinals. Ohio State would tumble from its number two ranking, but could still look forward to a chance to repeat as Big Ten champions. News of the Buckeyes' loss was well-received in Lincoln, where the third-ranked Cornhuskers had a 14-3 halftime lead and a clear path to move up 
to number two in the rankings. The first half had been one to forget for Bobby Bowden and the Seminoles, but at halftime, the FSU coaches made an adjustment in how Rick Stockstill would attack the Blackshirt defense. Nebraska was so much bigger than us. You know, we had Ken Lanier. We had one offensive lineman, and Ken played at about 280. You know, everybody else, you know, 225, 230, 240, 250 in there. So they were so much bigger than us you know, that we had a hard time, you know, just from a physical matchup. But, you know, 544, 545, 500 protection is sprint out, is a full sprint out. And then 44 is sprint draw to the right, 45 is sprint draw to the left. So if I just said 44, we're going to run sprint draw to the right, I'm going to hand it to our tailback. And then 45 to the left. So, on 544, you know, so now it's, uh, I'll call 544Z comeback, 544, you know, Z takeoff or whatever, whatever the route is. But, you know, I'm sprinting out. The line is doing their sprint out protection. And then I'm faking the sprint draw to our back. And then I'm going to continue to sprint on the corner, you know, and I've got the option, you know, whatever our, uh, our passing concept is whatever our route concept is, you know, to throw it, if it's open, throw it, if it's not, you know, I've got the option to, you know, pull it down and run it. So that helped us slow down their pass rush a little bit. We were able to establish the run a little bit better because of that. And it got us out on the edges, uh, you know, where we could open up our passing game. But even if Florida State started the third quarter with optimism, it never could have dreamed that Nebraska would experience a complete meltdown. On their very first possession of the second half, the Huskers punter, Scott Gamar, dropped a perfectly placed snap, and Florida State took over with great field position. Bill Capiz converted his second field goal of the game, and the lead was cut to 14-6. On the following Nebraska possession, Jeff Quinn was intercepted, and seven plays later, Florida State scored a touchdown. The two-point conversion attempt was no good, and the lead was now just 14-12. to 12. Unbelievably, the next Cornhusker drive ended in a third straight turnover, when Jarvis Redwine fumbled at his own 34-yard line. Once again, Capice's field goal attempt was true, and as the third quarter ended, the Seminoles' defense had a slim 15-14 lead to protect. After the team's traded punts, Florida State found itself backed up on its own 28-yard line, facing a third down with 13 yards to go. I would bet my money. I'm a betting man. I believe Bobby's going to put it up here. Let's see what he does. Stock still rolling right. He's looking for a receiver, pumping down the field long. He is going for Williams. Complete! Phil Williams has it! First and 10 at the Nebraska 32-yard line. And the Seminole players are going wild on the sideline. Let's take a look at this again. Phil Williams with the biggest catch of his career right here at Lincoln, Nebraska, before 76,000-plus fans. Rick Stockstill rolling out. He's looking. He's got all the time in the world to throw, and that's what makes it. You know, it was 544. You know, it was a sprint out. It was Z takeoff, you know, and uh, – so I went through, you know, the fake, like I said, and rolled out there and, you know, threw a takeoff. And, you know, we had Phil out there, and he made a, you know, a nice catch on it before the safety got over the top. And, uh, you know, that really, one, it flipped the field position, the field, flipped the field, and then it enabled us to take a little bit more time, you know, off the clock and make it, 
you know, I think we ended up kicking a field goal on that drive, but, uh, you know, it ended up making them, you know, have to score a touchdown instead of kicking a field goal for the tie. Williams's big catch, despite being double teamed, kept the drive alive. And with 2.35 left in the game, Bill Capice made his fourth field goal to give the Seminoles a four-point lead. Nebraska's fans behind the uprights were signaling no good as the ball was driven over the top of the upright, but holder Kurt Unglab knew the kick was good right away. I was the field goal holder, so I can tell you this right now. It was, it was good. It wasn't even a question in my mind. I mean, I remember that. It wasn't even a question. I can tell Capice can hit a football. I can tell you when it's good as soon as it left my, my finger, if that makes sense. Nebraska got the ball at its own 20-yard line and needed a touchdown to save its perfect season. Quarterback Jeff Quinn got his team moving into Florida State territory, completing three passes and drawing two pass interference penalties. On third down, with just over a minute left, Jarvis Redwine was given his 25th carry of the game. It would end with him lying on the turf in pain after a vicious tackle by linebacker Reggie Herring broke his ribs. Redwine would leave the game with 145 yards, and his Heisman campaign was gone with him. He would miss the next two games and never return to his early season form. After Quinn converted a 4th and 12, Coach Osborne went to his bench to bring in third-string sophomore Roger Craig. Jarvis got hurt, and um, I ran a sweep and took it down to like the, I don't know, 5, 10 yards, something like that. Yeah, I, I almost scored the winning touchdown in that game. Craig galloped down to the Florida State 3-yard line but fumbled. A teammate of his fell on the ball to give the Huskers first and goal. But Nebraska, who already had three turnovers in the half, was playing with fire. On the sidelines, Coach Bowden prayed and asked God why he would let them come back in the second half just to lose like this. A first down pass was incomplete. And on second down, with 10 seconds left and no timeouts, Osborne sent in a pass play. Linebacker Paul Porowski was responsible for covering the fullback, but instead followed his instincts. They took him into Seminole's history. I think it was the play before they they ran something similar or tried to. I had noticed that there was a, a gap um, in their protection. I was actually, I believe, supposed to be in man coverage uh, that play with the fullback who went into the end zone, and obviously I didn't follow him. Uh, but I saw that gap, and I, I took advantage of it going back to don't hesitate and, and didn't hesitate and just knew, knew that I'd made a mistake, but again, didn't hesitate and just, just made a play. You know, the opportunity was there and took advantage of it. Um, so I guess the, the story of that is if, uh, if you do make mistakes in life, uh, don't hesitate, just keep going. And the result might be, uh, might be good for you. Porowski's sack jarred the ball loose and the fumble was recovered by Gary Futch to seal the win for the visitors. The offense came back onto the field, including walk-on center Jerry Coleman for a final snap. Like every other play that day, the center quarterback exchange was perfect. And on Monday, Coleman was called into Bowden's office, where the coach told him that he had earned a scholarship. He never started another game. As the clock ran out, the Florida State players were surprised to see the entire stadium rise and give them a standing ovation. Some Nebraska fans even waited outside the locker room to congratulate them. So moved was Bobby Bowden that he wrote a letter to the Nebraska fans that was published in the state newspapers. It said, I have never seen people with more class than I saw at Nebraska last week. I actually had the feeling that when we upset the Nebraska team, that instead of hate and spite, 
the Nebraska fans thanked us for coming to Lincoln and putting on a good show. This is nearly unheard of in today's society. Nebraska, you are a great example for Americans to copy. I hope we show half the class your people do. Sincerely, Bobby Bowden. Porowski, who would earn National Defensive Player of the Week honors, also received a letter. It was penned by Jarvis Redwine, who congratulated his rival on a hard-fought win from his hospital bed as he recovered from his cracked ribs. It was the first of a four-game series between the two teams, and the 18-14 upset is still remembered as maybe the most important win in Florida State history. At the time, there was no doubt of its importance. This was a big win for us, no doubt about it, maybe the biggest, Bowden said in his post-game news conference. They'll kill us next year. But well before Nebraska could exact its measure of revenge, another, more immediate and deadly threat was looming. This time, the Seminoles would have to stand up against Pittsburgh, the beast of the East. For the second week in a row, Florida State would play the number three team in the country. This time, the Panthers would come to Tallahassee for a Saturday night showdown. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. Has the goes deep toward the end zone where it is caught, touchdown! Can Florida State survive another heavyweight battle with Pittsburgh in front of the largest home crowd in school history? Alabama and the Bear head to the Big Apple and get a surprise test from Rutgers. UCLA looks to avoid a hangover after its upset of Ohio State as it takes on John Elway and Stanford. And Houston and Texas A&M play into the wee hours of the morning. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoy the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds, as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.